Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. Chuck Moore Speaks, Monday through Friday, 12 noon to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday here at Blog Talk Radio. Of course, Cyber Station USA Radio Network will be joining us live in the second hour, as will our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. You can also get the program on your Stitchers app, which is free. All you need to do is download it onto your cell phone. You can listen to this program anywhere in the world. You're welcome to join the conversations, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. I'd like to welcome aboard my guest this hour. Vivian Louis is the author of Keeping the Immigrant Bargain. Vivi is an associate professor at the Graduate School of Education at Harvard University. Vivian, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, Chuck, for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, your book is of some interesting data with regard to uh, the attitudes and the experiences of new immigrants, particularly from Colombia and uh, and the Dominican Republic. That's right. And uh, give um, us a quick thumbnail, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. Of course, Chuck. I'm happy to do that. So I was interested in the book and how the children of the Latino immigrants, as you say, the Dominicans and Colombians, uh, keep the immigrant bargain that is made between immigrant parents and their American-born and or raised children. And by that, I mean the children try to make up for their parents' sacrifices with migration by successfully going on to college and in the process hopefully doing well. Since we don't often think of Latinos as being academically successful, I was interested in how these children, who are typically not expected to achieve, actually end up doing so well. And, and exactly how does that mm-hmm. happen? I mean, because I think that, uh, you know, of course we could look at sociology and make generalizations, but nevertheless, um, you know, different ethnic groups seem to be gra- seem to gravitate toward various professions, at least in the very beginning of their immigration and uh, you're right the hispanics are, are not known as as much as academically oriented as say some other ethnic groups like particularly the the uh, the vietnamese are very academic what did, what did you find going on there sure it's a great question um well i did a three and a half year study of surveys and interviews of 113 members of dominican and colombian families so mostly with the adult children and um with some of their immigrant parents And what I found was that these young people I interviewed were able to keep the immigrant bargain because they had the support of both families and institutions. Mm -hmm. So the working class Latino children, they had the optimism of their parents and themselves that they'd do well in the U.S. Their parents really worked hard to supervise the children, make sure they were in school, not getting into trouble. And the children were close to their parents and, and, you know, really wanted to please them. Mm-hmm. But the non-family part was just just as important, which doesn't get a whole lot of attention in the media and sometimes in policy debates, has to do with institutional networks of support, programs that really grew out of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And through those programs, 
the children got to know adult supporters who really helped guide them to the educational system and believed in the children's abilities to succeed. So both families and institutions and how they engage with families, both parents and children, are hugely important. Okay, my guest is Vivian Louis, Keeping the Immigrant Bargain. Uh, Vivian, you seem to be saying that um, they, they had good mentors in the school who took them under their wing as individuals and who said, you know, I care about you, I'm going to help you, I'm going to watch you, and uh, I believe that you can succeed. Would that be accurate? Yes, it would be, absolutely. Uh, you know, it seems, uh, you know, you, you are, are the daughter of Chinese immigrants, and I can I can just say from my own experience, my daughter is a student at Boston Latin School. Oh, um, wow. I'm, I'm proud to say, yes, I'm here in Boston. Yeah, that's so great, Chuck, yeah. And she says that the um, the Asian students are very high achieving in her class, and um, there's kind of a joke that goes around the school, which is that a, an A minus is an Asian F. And and that they're they're very oriented toward doing well, and they they become they get upset if they get anything less than an A. We're talking about people who come from a tradition and families that are very oriented toward achievements and academics. Mm -hmm. Was that your experience? Um, well, so I can answer that in a couple of ways. I mean, I am the child, so from a personal perspective, I am the child of, of working-class immigrants. Um, I was born in Manhattan's Chinatown um, and grew up between there and Queens, uh, where we moved later on. So um, definitely, I mean, I think that education, you know, was important in our family home. But I think if you had to ask me what the critical resources for me, I mean, it really would have to be that I went to um, great public schools um, in Queens. And, and more than that, I went to – I was noticed by my teachers after a while. It did take a little while. <laughs> and, right. um, and they kind of invested in me. And because uh, I, I didn't start out being a great reader or a great student, or, or really, um, and so they they worked with me, um, and I'm always appreciative of that, um, of all the hard work um, that teachers do, especially in our public schools, which after all um, educates most Americans. Um, and I also have the second way I want to answer that is I wrote a book, um, another book uh, called Compelled to Excel, where I looked at the um, idea of Chinese Americans and Asian Americans, actually, as this kind of immigrant success story, because they have the right kind of cultures to succeed, especially in school. And what I find there is that uh, race and class matter a lot in their experiences, so Chinese immigrant parents, both working and middle class, encourage their children to do so well in school um, because they fear potential racial discrimination against them. You know, so I that think that might, also there mm-hmm. might be another wrinkle to this as well. With sure, Asian sure. Students, and it's not, it's not just Chinese, as you say. It's South Korean, Japanese, Taiwanese, uh, Filipino students, Vietnamese particularly also is that part of the uh, traditional culture is to have these sort of autonomous networks of people, uh, to mm-hmm. even to the degree where, where rather than go to, like, for example, a, a bank, 
someone who is starting a business may take a loan from people in this network, this sort of informal network. And there's a lot of sort of intra and inter uh, networking and, and, and advocacy and promotion that goes along. And I think I happen to be Jewish, and I think that the same <laughs> thing applies in the Jewish community when you get to the more religious Jewish community. It's kind of almost an autonomous ethnic group that uh, where people do help each other out in a lot of ways, both in terms of personally, professionally, educationally. They mentor people, and they kind of form like a greater – generic family uh, based mm-hmm. upon shared mm-hmm. shared values um, and also shared ethnic values um, and, and that and throughout through that network they kind of tr- make sure that people get through and and that they uh, that they do well I'm glad you raised that Chuck I mean I do think that what you're saying about ethnic networks um, and a kind of shared community is important what I two things I want to add to that I mean, one thing is that we also need to keep in mind um, the role of wealth um, in these kinds of intra-ties that you were mentioning so well. Um, Mm -hmm. So, for example, even when working-class Chinese live in a Chinatown, right, as I did when I was growing up, which do have substantial rates of poverty both in Boston, New York City, other areas, right, Mm-hmm. Um, but the Chinatowns also have a lot of uh, wealth from Asia, Asian businessmen, right, sure. investing in real estate, hotels, factories, um, in kind of the broader Chinatown economy. And also you have middle and upper middle class folks maybe who've settled out in the suburbs, um, but they keep their ties um, through volunteerism, through um, social ties, family ties, to working class folk in Chinatown. So what this means is that the working class Chinese still have access to institutions that help them with schooling and information, right, from middle and upper middle class folk that really provide kind of um, key help for them. And um, so I think that that's important to keep in mind. Um, That's a key advantage. And another key advantage is we also know that Asians in general in the United States are less residentially segregated than Latinos. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that they have access, therefore, to better public schools. And right. Latinos are less residentially segregated than blacks. I mean, that's kind of the queuing that goes on. When you say residentially segregated, you mean that they are more integrated into the greater community? That's right. They're neighborhoods where they live. Okay. Yeah. Vivian, we have to take a brief break. My guest is Keeping the Immigrant Bargain, the Costs and Rewards of Success in America. You're welcome to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. Please stay tuned. back keeping the immigrant bargain we're talking about immigrant groups to the united states and how well they do in terms of academically how well they do in terms of assimilating into the american uh, 
population and whatnot, which brings me to my next issue, Vivian, and sure. that's Vivian Louis, my guest. Um, the uh, the do the Hispanic uh, does the Hispanic population, based upon your studies, uh, uh, and I, I know that when you talk, when you mention the word Hispanic, we're not talking about uh, one big enormous group. We're talking about very very different and very diverse groups. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. Dominicans are very different than the than the Colombians, who are different than the Cubans, who are different than the Spanish. You know, I mean, each group has its own particular ethnic antecedents. Um, but in general, are they interested in, and this is, of course, an issue that many Americans wonder about, are they interested in assimilating into American culture um, while at the same time maintaining their own identity in a manner that would be similar to immigrant waves from previous generations going back to the Irish? Uh, that's a great question, and I would say that absolutely contemporary immigrants from Latin America and the Caribbean are very much like their European counterparts, like the Irish, as you mentioned, um, Jews of past generations, in that they want and do the same things. They want to work hard to learn English, become a part of American life, want better opportunities for their children, want their children to become American. I mean, I know that some of us fear that immigrants and their children will never become American, but even as we have those fears, those same immigrants and their kids are really assimilating rather quickly into American life. Um, And in fact, both historically and in contemporary times, what we think of as the American mainstream or the American identity has really been fluid and in fact transformed by immigrants and their descendants. So an example I always like to bring up is um, when we think of American food today, um, you know, a lot of people like to go out for Italian food or make Italian food. I certainly do. Pasta. <laughs> and um, But it, it brings us back to the recognition that Italian uh, immigrants in the United States and their descendants, it took several generations for them to be accepted. As American. Oh, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, if you take a look, I collect old magazines, um, and mm-hmm. I have issues of Harper's Weekly going back to the 1890s when there was a major influx of French Canadians, particularly mm. in New England and also in New York and the Northeast, and they were viewed as some sort of exotic foreigners. You know, they, they, they it was actually, back then the language was much more racist. I mean, they didn't have the conscience we have now. They referred to them as with swarthy complexions. And, yes. You know, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, and so, I mean, obviously the French have completely assimilated into American culture. But at the same time, I think that, other, you know, my own ethnic group, Judaism, I mean, we, we liked, we, we want, we're as American as apple pie, but at the mm-hmm. same time, Jews, particularly people like myself who are a bit more traditional and religious, we do keep a separate culture. We do keep a separate uh, group of um, of affiliations and, and customs and and ways of doing things. And yet, those those differences, the, the ethnic differences or the religious and ethnic differences, are completely compatible to the American way of life. I mean, there's nothing that uh, mm-hmm. in in any way contradicts. American culture, and we're fully participating. Absolutely. Um, and Whereas I think there are other ethnic groups that totally assimilate, and even to the degree that I think they lose their their ethnic identity altogether. I think the French were would be one of those, and certainly the English. Mhm. Mhm. Right. And linguistically, of course, um, 
you know, the United States is, uh, in the words of uh, sociologist Dan Lieberson, but it's become the kind of cemetery of ancestral languages. Um, so I think French yes. definitely would be one of those examples, and Italian and German and the like. Well, I think with Hispanics, there is a there. Uh, however, the language is a major part of their identity. They do want to keep Spanish, and they do believe many many Hispanics do believe, and they've say, and they've stated it that they would like to see the United States become bilingual, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, Spanish is maintained. Um, almost as a, in some parts of this country, I think is almost a second language. Yes, I mean, I, I think that definitely um, Spanish will be an interesting um, test case about uh, the linguistic uh, foundation of our nation in terms of its fluidity, you know. Um, so, I mean, that said, I also do want to highlight, of course, we all know this, that bilingualism, multilingualism is actually really important um, in a globalized world, right, and to our nation's kind of well-being uh, moving forward in the in the labor market. Well, well let me ask you about that, that, Vivian, because I tend to believe that, yes, while it's, it's a, great, a great thing for young people to learn a second language, even a third language, I do believe that English should be the official language of the United States. Um, not because, not out of a sense of chauvinism that English is better mm-hmm. than any other language, but because English is the language of our founding generation, and that it keeps us together as a people. In other words, if we all if we can all speak the same language, then we can all talk to each other. We can all communicate with each other on the same plane, and it it, it has a certain not just linguistic but cultural cohesion. So. In the context, in that context, we can all be very different, both as individuals and and as groups, but keep a certain common American denominator. And again, I, I mean, I don't want to be accused of being chauvinistic here, because if the founding fathers spoke Swahili, I would say the same thing. I mean, it's not because English is better or worse than any other language; it just happens to be the lingua franca of the land. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that's already occurring and that's I don't think there's any kind of danger of that being a different uh a different scenario mm. uh just as with assimilation right i mean we have these fears we had these fears back in the you know earlier periods of american history and we continue to have them um but we really assimilation is not um it's it's happening even as you and i speak it's just a now, part what, of the why dynamic cuz you talk about the um the Colombians and the Dominicans having the family networks, having mentors within the community. That's certainly true of the Chinese community. It's certainly true of the Jewish community. But mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's true with the black community. And, of course, with African Americans, they were here in the very earliest days. I mean, they were as American as apple pie. And, and they certainly have wealth. I mean, there certainly is a strata of the black community, even going back, that is extremely wealthy. But yet they don't seem to have the same mentoring ability or orientation that the Chinese have and that the Jews have in terms of uh, helping their their own come up and, and, and working with their own people who are not as successful. Is Do you think that that's accurate? And, again, I know I'm generalizing here. Well, I think that the African-American um, community has faced severe um discrimination and conditions of disadvantage that no other group 
uh, has faced in the United States along those lines of concentrated um, segregation, uh, very uh, uh, hyper-segregated, both along the lines of race and ethnicity and poverty in the communities in which they live, and all that that means for having resources in the neighborhood, safety, uh, trust and cohesion in one another, public schools and other public facilities. Um, so, I mean, that's what I would really point to, is that um, you have to feel a sense of safety uh, in which to have build these ties with one another across class. I think the Colombian case is a great example of that from the work that I've done, because um, the working class Colombian families uh, were less residentially segregated than the Dominicans, so they did have access to better public schools, comparatively speaking. Um, but even though there are middle-class Colombians here in the U.S., mm-hmm. working-class Colombians didn't know them, and they couldn't benefit from the information that they may have had. And this was because of mistrust amongst the Colombians um, coming into the U.S., stemming from the tensions back in the home country, right? Um, things with the, the war that was going on and, and sure. drugs and all of that. So if you don't, if that channel of access to information to people who who can help you out is blocked, um, then you're kind of left much more on your own. And that's a very difficult position to be in, um, especially if you don't have a lot of information on your own. And that's where I think institutions, uh, particularly, you know, uh, non-ethnic institutions, programs like Upward Bound, the Federal TRIO program that was launched during President Johnson's uh, Great War on Poverty, um, other community-based organizations, um, as well as strong public schools, that's where it really comes into play. Do you think, though, that those organizations and that approach has actually served the African-American community well? And I say that because in spite of the racism and in spite of the poverty, the African-American family, it was fairly intact, and the network was was there. It could have used some strengthening, and I think that there was also a very strong, and this is something that people may discount, but there was a very strong Christianity in the black community. The, the black church, mm-hmm. I think, in a sense, um, imbued the white church in America and saved it. And I think a lot of that went by the wayside with the replacement of some of these programs that were put in place during Johnson, um, you know, which I think led to, and, I, and, and this is something, there's been a lot of sociological studies done on this, even as early as the 1960s, Daniel Patrick Moynihan mm-hmm. uh, did some very serious books on this. Um, he actually became senator in New York, which mm-hmm. showed that uh, these big programs, the welfareism and uh, the federal programs, the war on poverty and whatnot, that they, they led to uh, at least, you know, um, empirically, a disintegration of the black family and a um, kind of a, a loss of, um, you know, of, of, of spiritual pride and, and, and ability of the black person, man, particularly women as well, to uh, to stand up on their own. Well, what I can say is that um, the folks whom I interviewed for the for this study, so meaning the Dominicans and the Colombians, you know, a lot of them really talked about um, the friendships and mentoring that they got from African-American black strivers, so students who um, who were their peers, their classmates, and their good friends, who um, were also showing 
um, the folks I was interviewing, basically how to achieve in school, how to be motivated, and how to get around particular uh, roadblocks. Um, like low expectations in school and in within your community, and also kind of hooking them up with these uh, various programs that are important. So actually what my work showed was how important um, the, that one, that there, the, the existence of African-American strivers in urban communities that might be struggling, and two, um, how they link up with um, their Latino counterparts. Um, and provide a resource for one another, and three, um, how institutional supports really are crucial um, to their overall success, all of them. Right, and I think that there's always been a strain in the in the black community going all the way back to uh, the Civil War, really, where you have a very highly academic, high-achieving group of people who do double as well because of, because of racism, and because they need to overcome racism. You know, the Booker T. Washington's, and whatnot, and and yet in today's culture, and this is something that's been discussed by Bill Cosby, who has criticized. Oftentimes, you find that when a young black person is achieving and is, um, in a sense, is upward bound, as it were, mm-hmm. they have social pressure and criticism within their own community for people who say, "Well, you're acting white, you know, you're assimilating." I mean, it's, it sounds terrible. And but and I'm not sure it happens, but there's almost a pressure to to not do that because it's it's like a betrayal of their race. You know, I, I mean, I, I I take that point um, seriously, and I think that motivation and optimism are definitely both really important to becoming successful, and it it is definitely lies at the heart of a kind of cultural narrative about success. Um, What we need to think more about, though, I think, is where this motivation and optimism actually come from um, and how it's maintained or depressed by the opportunities and constraints that people, uh, whether they're immigrants or non-immigrants, find in the United States. And so by emphasizing culture, whether it's in the family, in the community, um, or um, you know, among peer groups, well, I certainly think that all of those things are important. Um, we also, but but focusing too much on that shifts the emphasis away from powerful institutional and other factors, which are mm-hmm. crucial to understanding success. Well, uh, Vivian, your study is very important. You did a lot of firsthand field research to write this book, oh. Keeping the Immigrant Bargain: The Cost and Rewards of Success in America. Um, how can people get a copy of the book? Oh, thanks, Chuck. So they can go to the Russell Sage Foundation. Um, that's um, rsf.org, www.rsf.org, and purchase a copy of the book there. Um, it published the book. Um, then they can also get copies through other venues if they'd like. Um, and that's, yeah. Well, it's, um, I want to It's been a pleasure you. speaking with you. Thank you, Vivian Louis, the author of Keeping the Immigrant Bargain, the Cost and Rewards of Success in America. We'll be back after these messages. Thanks so much, Vivian. Thank you so much, Chuck. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.
time this afternoon. Open lines here at Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morse Speaks, 347-327-9849. What is on your mind this afternoon, huh? 347-327-9849. I want to thank Vivian Louis for coming on with me the first segment today. Keeping the Immigrant Bargain, the Costs and Rewards of Success in America. In hour number two at the top of the next hour, the syndicated hour, we'll be joined by David Clark. He is a candidate for the presidency of these United States. And David has a solution to the national debt crisis. He wants to um, lay that out on this program and uh, perhaps uh, contribute to the national debate um, in terms of whether or not that's important. I think that now that the uh, both the Democratic and the Republican parties have their nominees, it's probably pretty difficult to get any um, any traction, um, given that we're all focused on the national election now. Both parties have their vice presidents in place. They both have had their conventions, and now it's really more a matter of um, you know which who's going to be doing what, and I think that uh, it looks to me like it's going to be a very close election. Um, I I still believe that um, you know Mitt Romney could pull this thing off. Um, I still have a certain sense of optimism. I think Barack Obama has been a a, a not a bad president. Um, I've been criticized for saying that because people are getting very polarized right now, but uh, it's the truth. But uh, Mitt Romney, on the other hand, is a great man. He's an unusual man. Um, I'm not saying that only because I've met him many times here in Massachusetts. Uh, I'm saying it because I've observed him as governor of our state. He is someone who does know how to get things done. He is he's not an ideologue, and that's true, and that's perhaps both his strength and weakness. But nevertheless, he is a, a man for the times. I, I really believe that, and I am a full supporter of Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan. Uh, Romney reminds me of a, of a sort of a, a, a Dwight Eisenhower, you know, or even a Jack Kennedy. You know, these were great men. They were not ideologues. They they had their points of view. I would say that uh, you know certainly Eisenhower was to the right of center, and Kennedy was to the left of center. But nevertheless, they, they they kind of were oriented toward doing what they thought was best for the United States. And I think that's who Mitt Romney is. Barack Obama, on the other hand, I believe is more ideological. And I believe that the ideology that he embraces is not one that's healthy for this country. Uh, I believe that if he is reelected, that ideology is going to come out much more to the fore. And the result could be very damaging to to our, our nation going forward. Do I think we can survive it? Of course. I think America is strong enough that not one person could ever really do us in. Um, but uh, but why not do better? Why not have some more common sense? You know, his record has not been that great uh, in terms of dealing with the crisis that he did indeed inherit. And I think Mitt Romney's will, would be at least somewhat better. Mitt Romney will not come in with all this flashiness and great change. But he's a sturdy, steady administrator, and his administration would open the country up to some others who, 
who are very much real innovators who are, who could really get things done. Um, I, I saw David Bernstein has a column today in the in the Boston Phoenix. I get a chance to read it yet, but he feels that Mitt Romney's candidacy has been the end of the Tea Party, which of course he's glad about. I don't think so. I think that the ideas of the Tea Party actually are ideas that not only will be embraced by the Republican Party, but also eventually by the Democratic Party. Anyway, here's my latest my latest blog that um, I, I might as well read it over the air. It is posted on this program's blog site, which is Chuck Moore Speaks. Just put the word Chuck Moore Speaks into your server, and up it will come. One reason not to vote for President Barack Obama. Barack Obama is not, has not been a bad president. He deserves credit for saving General Motors and for killing bin Laden, as was noted in the Democratic National Convention. But there is one reason why Barack Obama should not be elected, and that is because of his attack on Mitt Romney for being rich. The tone of this attack by Obama and his many and by his many surrogates and followers is an attack on everything America stands for. Firstly, and from a practical standpoint, Americans should celebrate Mitt Romney's success because it means success for others. As Mitt Romney's success contributed to the success of hundreds of thousands of Americans. Mitt Romney's company, Bain Capital, really did create hundreds of thousands of jobs due to its investment in startups such as Staples and Sports Authority, even factoring in its mistakes and failures. More fundamentally, capital in the hands of the creators of capital, private citizens, goes either toward investment or consumption. Either way, capital creates economic activity, which creates products and services, which creates jobs. Certainly too much American capital makes its way overseas, but this is because of faulty public policies by the government, policies that should be reformed to encourage domestic investment. The surest way to accomplish more domestic investment is with a favorable tax environment and regulations that encourage business and savings. On the surface, the attack against Mitt Romney for being rich generates class conflict by stimulating the basest of emotions in many of us, emotions of envy and greed. The reasoning is that because your neighbor down the street has more than you, then you are entitled to a piece of what he has just because you want it. Many of us are envious of people like Mitt Romney, and some of us would feel better about our own sense of inferiority if the government moved in and took a bigger piece of our neighbor's property, cutting them down to size. This makes no sense as we cut off our own noses to spite our face. Going deeper, the attack against Mitt Romney for being rich is an attack on self-interest and our ability to freely trade goods and services and accumulate capital. This is an attack on private ownership, and this is an attack on human freedom and the human spirit. These basic and positive aspects of human nature, self-interest, the ability to trade in a free market, are demonized when Mitt Romney is attacked for being rich. Mitt Romney is used as a stand-in for the free market, and the attack is exacerbated by the vicious stereotyping of Mitt Romney as out of touch and uncaring. 
This was done with a political ad accusing Mitt Romney of not caring about the cancer death of the wife of a laid-off employee from a company that Bain had invested in. Besides the fact that the tragic death occurred six years after the layoff and that Mitt Romney was not at Bain at the time, this portrayal is an ugly and false stereotype of all successful people. Not to be too hyperbolic, but this was the same sort of attack the Nazis leveled against the Jews and the Young Turks leveled against the Armenians. Both groups were viewed as rich, and public emotions of greed and envy were stoked against them, making them vulnerable to conspiracy theories and blame for the shortcomings of many citizens and of the governments themselves. The fact is that many Jews in Germany and many Armenians in Turkey were indeed rich and successful, but this was a good thing, not something to be demonized. If you replace the word rich or millionaire and billionaire with the word Jew, you would have very similar rhetoric emanating out of many on the left today, generally, and as related to Mitt Romney's wealth in particular, as did emanate out of Nazi Germany with regard to the Jews. So there you have it. That is my blog site for today. Uh, one reason not to vote for President Barack Obama because of this terrible, scurrilous, nasty, ongoing campaign of attack for him for being rich. And by the way, we may note that um, John Kerry was three times richer than Mitt Romney in 2004. He was not criticized, generally. He was not constantly referred to as rich, as if there's something wrong with that. And he didn't earn his money. He, he made it by marrying his and inheriting his second wife's first husband's trust fund. So yeah, I know that I bring that up a lot, but that's that's the truth. You know, this is what uh, what we're looking at here, and it is ugly. And it is probably the most significant centerpiece of this campaign. Mitt Romney is a rich guy, and he doesn't care about you. He just cares about himself. And, again, you can replace that with the attacks by the Germans on the Jews during um, the Nazi period and even before. The Jews are rich. They've made their money by somehow taking something away from you. They don't care about you, and they seek to control you. It's the same sort of rhetoric, and it is ugly, and it is not appropriate, nor is it fitting in our nation to have that kind of rhetoric. So I would argue that for that reason alone, Mitt Rod I mean, Barack Obama should not be reelected. That kind of talk should be repudiated and rejected by those of us who admire success, who strive to be more successful in our lives. We're not going to be, most of us will never be as successful as Mitt Romney, nor will we ever be likely to be as rich as uh, John Kerry or Mitt Romney. But the fact that we admire success means that we at least have somewhat of a shot at figuring out the mechanisms by which we can become successful rather than sitting around and wallowing in hatred and greed and envy toward those who are successful and allowing a political leader to step up 
and stoke that basic position, one that should one that is on its surface and on its face wrong should not happen. You're welcome to join the conversation. What say you? Why do you think Mitt Romney, uh, do you support Barack Obama or Mitt Romney? Why, why do you think Barack Obama should or should not be reelected as President of the United States? You're welcome to uh, chime in. The number is, oh, my computer is frozen here. Lovely. Um, let's see here. Nope. The number to join us is 347 327 9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. I'm not sure if I'm even on the air because my computer is like frozen here, but uh, we shall see. Um, maybe I should, uh, well, I, I can't hang up because if I hang up, then I don't know if I can get back. So we'll just have to hope that uh, things settle down a little bit here. Well, what else is going on here? Um, the election does appear to be tightening, and um, I just think that we have to ask ourselves several questions as we take a look at this race. There are questions that are both practical and, and also there are questions that are moral and spiritual. The practical question is whether or not we think that Barack Obama is going to uh, has done a good job so far and whether or not he will do a good job in a second term. And that's something that certainly reasonable people can differ on. It's uh, entirely a decision that needs to be made by by each one of us. Oh, I don't even know if I'm on the air. I'm having some computer problems here. No, it says I'm on the air. Great. Um, and uh, anyway, you're welcome to join me, Chuck Morris. Uh, come on down. That number is 347-327-9849. Uh, here at Blog Talk Radio, 347-327-9849. And uh, we shall pick up the program in the second hour with David Clark. He's a candidate for the presidency of the United States. Um, he's actually, we'll find out the nature of his campaign, but I believe that his main platform and his main cause, uh, his main raison d'etre of his candidacy is his claim that it is necessary to retire the national debt. I'm interested in finding out how he plans on doing that. I mean, that's... Um, I think always an interesting topic. Um, the program, of course, airs Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so uh, you're welcome to come on down and join me. Um, the uh, strike in Chicago. Apparently, 500,000, an estimate 500,000 students are not in school this morning. Because the teachers have decided that uh, even though they are the highest paid teachers in America, and even though the mayor, a liberal Democrat, former uh, Obama chief of staff Rahm Emanuel, and his school department have offered them a very, very substantial package, which includes a 15% raise, 
uh, they've decided that that's not enough, and they've gone on strike. I think this is very bad news, uh, not obviously only for the young students of the city of Chicago, which is terrible news. I mean, I hate the thought of this. I have a daughter in public school. Do you want to have your kid uh, not uh, attending school right at the beginning of the school year? You have teachers all out with, with placards. They're supposed to get sympathy for this. It shows that the teachers' unions don't give a damn about students. But it also gets to the bigger issue, which is this burgeoning power of public unions. There should not be public unions, period. This is something that should not happen. I respect unions in the private sector. I was a member of a union. I actually was a member of Local 24 Hotel Waiters and Bartenders Union for many years. I used to do bank- used to work banquets. Uh, I know unionism, and I admire it. But that's one thing. Those are unions that are dealing with private companies. And I think in the cases of private companies, the employees should have the ability and the right legally to collective bargaining, to, in other words, to have their own organization and a means to speak to the management with one voice on matters of of, um, of salaries and benefits and, and working conditions and all of the other things that are issues for the workers in a company. I believe that. I'm a firm believer in it. Although, having said that, I do not believe that we need a closed shop state. I think that should be highly questionable constitutionally. Um, I think unions do better, actually, and it's proven that they do just as well, if not better, in open shop states where they have to compete with non-union institutions, and the result is that everyone ends up better. The the non-union institutions, when I used to work in hotels, it was non-union hotels, they would actually offer a better package uh, for their employees than than did the union hotels, uh, mainly because they did not want the unions to come in. So, you know, to my way of thinking, that's a much better system. But either way, the idea of public unions organized and advocating in their own interest against the taxpayer, because these are not private companies, these are the government, is something that should be rejected completely by all. It's not right. That looks like my on-air thing is up here, so let me just see if I can get to a... uh,
I believe we are back. We're having some technical difficulties here. You know, last week my computer went out on the fritz, so I've been uh, kind of operating behind the eight ball ever since. I'm, I'm working with um, – it's actually my wife's old computer, and it's not great. You know, it doesn't uh, doesn't do the job, if, if you will. Um, so I'm now trying to log on to um, the um, – which I'm gonna call it the uh, the blog, the, um, the the Apple product that my daughter has. Maybe that could work better. Um, I'm gonna continue talking, assuming that we're on the air, even though the music is not stopping here. Um, maybe I could. Um, let me just see if I can do something with that. No, that's just not happening. Um, getting back to the issue of what's going on in Chicago with the teachers unions. I think that it's um, it's a situation that's not going to augur well, if you will, for Barack Obama. Um, it's uh, because, and the reason is because it reminds people of the Scott Walker situation. Now that doesn't mean that uh, you know, except in this case, of course, it's not Scott Walker, right-wing Republican. It's uh, Rahm Emanuel left-wing, democratic, liberal, former chief of staff in the Obama administration who is presiding over the same problem that uh, Scott Walker had. Let's see if I can do this. Um, I don't know. Um And I believe we are back. I apologize for the brief interregnum there, uh, but um, we're having a couple of minor technical difficulties here. We're expecting a call shortly from David Clark, who is um, a president. He is running for the presidency of these United States. Uh, we'll get more information on David uh, when he joins us. Uh, check out his blog site or his website. 
um, for president, just put in for president, R-E-S-I-D-E-N-T, and see what comes up. This crazy computer here. For president on YouTube, David Clark at LinkedIn. Uh, he doesn't really have a um, his own website, which surprises me, but he does have LinkedIn, which I love. It's a great networking site. And uh, But uh, getting back to the issue of Chicago, I think it augurs very poorly for Obama because it reminds people of Scott Walker and what they dislike about this public union control over our nation and that how the Democrats have been in bed with that because they get money from it. I mean, these are people who finance them and who send campaign money, which is something that's a disgrace. No union should, in the public sector should be sending campaign money. In fact, I don't even think that unions in the private sector should be involved with sending campaign money of any sort, nor should private unions. You know, in a sense, I mean, at least philosophically, I agree with those who oppose Citizens United, which allows for that. The uh, corporations and unions should not be involved in politics, period. I mean, it's a, they, they, they're not political entities. They're business entities. They're financial entities. They're economic entities. You know, the corporation is there to offer a good or a service and to, uh, and to make their profits selling that, that good or service, not, not influence politics. Same thing with unions. Unions are there as unions are the exact same thing as the corporation, except they are the rather than being the management part of the corporation, they are the working part of the corporation. You know, it's just a, it's just a branch of a corporation, nothing more and nothing less. And as such, their in the their their role in in society should also be strip, mainly economic, and that is to negotiate for the benefits of their employees, nothing more. So as such, it, there are serious questions, ethically, spiritually, and otherwise, with regard to whether or not uh, these entities should be involved in politics. Uh, I don't know if it's constitutionally appropriate to ban them under the issue of free right to uh, association, and I have spoken out against for that reason. I spoke out in favor of the Citizens United decision for that reason. But at the same time, perhaps from a legislative level, it does seem to me that there would it would be beneficial to our Republican form of government if both corporations and unions could be removed from from electing people from politics. Um, that that does seem to me to be uh, inappropriate. Anyway, we're going to go to a brief break. We'll be back with hour number two of Chuck Moore speaks, who will be joined by Cyber Station USA Radio Network at that time. Please stay tuned. Back, hour number two of fairness. Hour number two of 
Chuck Moore Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m., and we're now joined, of course, by our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and I believe we've got David Clark on the line. David is running for the presidency of these United States. David, how are you? Terrific, Chuck. How are you doing? Good, David. Give us a quick thumbnail, if you don't mind, of your background and what you're doing. Sure. I uh, was born in New York City uh, back in 1943 uh, and moved uh, out of the city probably in about 49, my family obviously, uh, to Connecticut. And I grew up in the northeast, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, and uh, New York. Uh, Went to school, graduated from Columbia University, and before that, I was in the U.S. Army. I was uh, one of the few people back in 64 that volunteered and uh, I was in the Army three years and then I requested assignment in Vietnam in 1966, which I got and I was over there for a year. Uh, so I went in the Army first and then came back and I graduated, you know, went to Columbia mm-hmm. and I uh, graduated from Columbia. Uh, from there I had a farm up in Vermont. Uh, for about eight years, uh, then I moved to uh, Palm Beach, Florida, uh, went back to New York City, got into the Wall Street business in 1985, and I've been doing that for 26 years, and I moved out to uh, Utah, where I live now, Park City, Utah, in 1992, and I've been here for 20 years. David, your candidacy as a candidate for the presidency, the main platform or your, the main portion of your platform is your program or your proposal to to basically uh, pay off the the national debt. Is that right? Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you want to do it? Well, let's say that, uh, and I'll just use round numbers and sort of a macro uh, view of this whole thing. Uh, let's say we have $16 trillion of debt, which we're coming up on uh, very hard right now. And mm-hmm. uh, let's say we pay it off, we decide. Again, even as president, as we all know, Congress is the one that controls uh, the purse strings. So the president of the United States, whoever he or she is, uh, can only suggest, but my my campaign and platform would be, uh, let's say, to pay that off in 10 years. So that would be a trillion six, uh, $600 billion, uh, and we would have, I would suggest we have a surtax on every income in the United States every year for 10 years, and for everybody to pay according to their ability. Um, again, that would be set by Congress. I would love to have input into that, but in other words, to have a surtax of uh, a trillion six, uh, you know, per year for 10 years, and at the end of that time period, uh, the surtax would stop, and we would pay off the national debt. The reason for this, Chuck, is we're not going to have anything to speak of here if we don't pay off the national debt, Uh, and this debt has been going on for 40 years. So it's not a Democratic uh, Party or a Republican Party problem. Every single president, and you, everybody can Google this, uh, if you go back to uh, 1970, what happened was that the government and the politicians decided instead of taxing that they would just increase the national debt and pay for services and so forth, uh, doing it that way because they didn't have 
really the uh, the character, the backbone, whatever you want to call it, to impose taxes on the citizens. And I have been an amateur historian for the last five years um, and have dedicated myself uh, uh, for many hours each day of uh, boning up on history. And I think in any society during any period of time that probably the most fundamental issue in a society is taxation or the lack thereof. And you can really judge a society by their will to tax or, or not to tax. And unfortunately, the United States has not had the will to tax the citizens. And now we're paying for it. we got a $16 trillion debt. And what people don't understand, I mean, the impression I get is that this is sort of an option uh, for the citizens of the United States, and it's not an option. It has to be paid. The money has to be paid, and the money will be paid. And it's just a matter of if it's going to be done uh, through our uh, initiative or uh, something different uh, along the lines of Spain and Greece and the other countries over there in the, in Europe. And um, But this is going to be a price that's going to be exacted uh, from the United States at some point in the future. I prefer to do it now. If we don't do this and we keep on going with what the Republicans and the Democrats are doing and, and not doing in Congress and so forth, we're going to see, and I would say probably within the next 10 years, uh, people say it's going to be a lot shorter than that, but these things unfortunately take much more time uh, than they should uh, and we're doing it now. The air is coming out of the balloon. But we're going to see social uh, disintegration and economic disintegration in this country, uh, I would say, starting with – I mean, it's starting now, but we're going to really see its effect uh, uh, much more stronger in about a 10-year period. Okay. My guest is David Clark. He's running for the presidency of these United States. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back. Thank you. Okay, we are back. I'd like to welcome aboard to Chuck Moore Speaks, our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. Of course, our host station, Cyber Station USA Radio Network, our online partners, Blog Talk Radio and Stitchers, our app where you can listen to this program archived on your cell phone anywhere in the world. My guest is David Clark. He is a candidate for the presidency of the United States. David, your main issue being to eliminate the national debt. And uh, firstly, I mean, it's my understanding that there's been a national debt in this country going all the way back to Washington. I mean, there was only one administration that totally paid off the national debt, and that was the administration of Andrew Jackson. And that only lasted for maybe one or two years toward the end of his term after he had uh, allowed the uh, Second Bank of the United States Charter to expire. So we've always had a national debt. The question I think also that, that, that 
maybe both parties are kind of skirting around, and certainly one of the parties is not addressing at all, that being the Democratic Party, is the national deficit, which has increased by $4 trillion, um, and which um, under under the watch of President Barack Obama, and also increased uh, probably maybe about half that during the eight years of the Bush administration. But I think it's been the national deficit that has increased since the 1970s, particularly during the Nixon administration and the Johnson administrations. Uh, but you're talking about basically levying a tax uh, on, on all American earners as a way to pay off the national debt. Um, do you think that people are going to be willing to accept that tax? And how can we make sure legislatively, never mind constitutionally, that if this is if you if there was a tax imposed that the money indeed would go toward paying down the national deficit or debt for that matter well and that's an absolutely imperative point here um i would here's the problem okay with taxes in general if i was if the us government was to impose a tax on you personally and let's just make this personal for for a minute here well, let, let's say a thousand bucks okay or or five thousand to where it was uh uh you know had a, a fair impact on chuck morse what would happen is you would not want to do that and the reason you wouldn't want to do that is because you know that if you send a check of $5,000 to Washington, D.C., you might as well put that money down a rat hole. That's the problem here, Chuck. This is the problem. If people know that we're going to pay off with that money, that $5,000, the national debt, that's a whole different story. It's a whole different story. And think about what happens if we pay off the national debt. Now, let me just back up a little bit. If you look at, and, and you're absolutely right, to pay off the national debt, um, we have always paid most of it off. We've never had $16 trillion, obviously. But if you look after Washington, he had a lot of debt. They, and the credit of the United States, there was no credit. The United States had no credit. I, I, I guess it wasn't even the United States at that point. And uh, they had to pay their soldiers in uh, conscript and then they had to pay him back. But we paid him back. You know, between Washington and Alexander Hamilton, they paid back every nickel that was that they had borrowed. And uh, we did it after World War One. We did it after World War Two. The Depression, there was no to speak of, maybe a few, you know, billion dollars here and there, but there was no national debt of the United States. There was no debt uh, of the private citizen. Debt in the 1930s, there was none. We have all of the debt of, of the United States, of, of the national debt. We have all the consumer debt. We are up to our eyeballs in debt. And the way I look at this is really like an alcoholic who's drinking a, a fifth of vodka, two-fifths of vodka a day. The first thing they have to do is to stop drinking alcohol alcohol and the first thing we have to do in my opinion is to pay off the national debt what we would do is set up a, uh, a sinking fund they call it a sinking fund and there are a couple of countries that have used it uh, i think you're absolutely right with andrew jackson another one was in england uh with um william pitt the younger uh, paid off the national debt 
over there um, in the late 1780s or whatever, and um, you set up a sinking fund that, so that every single dollar that is raised by the surtax goes towards paying off the national debt. Yeah, I would, I, the last thing I would do is to give this money to the politicians in Washington, Republican and Democrat, to do what they want to do. But the problem has been the total lack of responsibility on the professional politicians over the last 40 years. They've made it a policy of funding expenses through debt. And we all know that that comes to an end at some point. And we are fast approaching. We are in checkmate. This is the reason you got Congress down there. Nobody wants to do anything, and nobody's done anything for about the last couple of years is because we're in checkmate. One party won't do one thing. The next, the other party won't do anything for the other party. So nothing is getting done, and the debt just keeps going up. David Clark's our guest, president, and running for the presidency. Uh, David, it seems to me that um, the problem is more systemic than that, in that the the way our government basically uh, funds itself, besides raising taxes, which is not palatable to most Americans is they borrow the money from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve gives them a blank check, basically. They, they bond the debt. They create these bonds, which are then sold on Wall Street and the, at an interest, and our money is created. That's how they pump currency into the economy, and it's at interest. Um, it seems to me that the entire system, as long as it stays that way, is going to be a system based on debt. In other words, that we're creating currency based upon projected future earnings based upon debt instruments as opposed to doing, in a sense, what Washington did, what Abraham Lincoln did, apparently what John F. Kennedy even did, which was simply issuing currency directly into the economy to pay for urgent needs and, and pay for expenses uh, of the government, and that money was issued debt-free. They call them greenbacks. Um, perhaps that might be a, an approach, um, or, and maybe uh, bringing back the gold standard rather than – I think as long as we leave the system in place where the government, the Congress can simply go to a Federal Reserve and ask for more money without raising taxes, then we're going to have debt. Uh, do you see any systemic problems? Do you see any structural problems with the way our currency is, ba uh, develop, uh, is based in this country that could be changed? Yeah, Chuck, I agree with you totally. Um, the problem that I uh, see uh, in putting out ideas is that um, I'm saying that the first thing that we do is pay off the debt, again, like the alcoholic who stops drinking, and then we're at the beginning. So we're not even, until we pay off the national debt, we're not even at the beginning. But at that point, if, if you think about what would happen if uh, we paid off the national debt or even, even started to pay off the national debt, what's going to happen is that the borrowing, the, the, the power of the, the, uh, the uh, strength of the dollar is probably going to double. The price of oil would come down at the pump right now. I'm paying close to $4, not quite $4. So a gallon of gasoline at the pump would be, come down to about $2 a gallon. Um, any imports, those uh, expensive German cars, you know, for uh, $80,000 or whatever, would be cut in mm -hmm. half to $40,000. Um, 
Now, there are a lot of things that we have to do. I've got I've got six items on my platform uh, that are, uh, I think, essential, but none is more essential than getting started and paying off the national debt. You know, the first thing you have to do is stop drinking alcohol, and then you can start to address the other problems in your life and, and, and how you act and so forth. But this is the first of many things that we need to do. Um, well, you know, and, David, I think that you're onto something if you can convince people and make the point that the more the national debt and the national deficit are reduced and the less money we are spending on our annual budget on interest on that debt. And, by the way, I think that that is probably the second largest, if not the largest, expenditure every year in the national debt, the interest on the debt, the interest to the Fed and to uh, bondholders. Um, if you can make the point that getting rid of or reducing that debt is going to lead to a, a dollar being worth a dollar, which means that prices will come down and it will eventually also lead to lower taxes, then I think that the American people would be for that. But I want to talk about the reaction, as I would see it, from many of us who <clears throat> are conventional thinkers on these things, which is, what about all of the social programs that this government has? How are we going to maintain those programs, those sort of forced charity, if you will, um, if we're going to, um, you know, cut taxes and reduce the debt? Well, no, I wasn't talking about cutting Or reduce taxes. the budget, um, that is. Yeah, because yeah. The bu if the budget exceeds the net, the, if the budget exceeds the intake in taxes, which it does, then you're going to have debt. And, right. you know, so so in order to reduce the national debt, it's, it's more than just raising taxes, which is what you're calling for. It's also that this budget is going to have to be reduced so that it fits into exactly how much revenue the government takes in. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, uh, Chuck, you're absolutely right. Uh, as I said, the first thing, uh, my platform is based on paying off the national debt. Secondly, live within your means. These are such simple concepts, uh, and they've been obfuscated, I think, by Wall Street and Washington, uh, you know, professional politicians. But these are simple concepts. These, these are concepts that our grandfathers and grandparents and, and great-grandparents and, and going back 3,000 years, people understood. This, this is right. nothing. There's nothing sophisticated about living within your means. But somehow, the United States of America, along with Europe, uh, you know, totally, has perverted that very, very basic concept. And uh, Europe, you know, loaded up on debt uh, that was probably, uh, you know, foisted on them from uh, the large banks and so forth. Yeah, there is a lot of work to be done here. But I think what's the realization of everything is going to happen to the individual American when they are uh, faced with the idea of paying off the national debt. Because when they when they get that concept, then everything else is going to fall into place. And they're going to say, well, geez, I shouldn't be loading up all this stuff on my credit cards and, 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 and borrowing. Of course, they're not doing it anymore, but everybody – went out, and not everybody, but a lot of people went out and got second and third mortgages on their houses when they never should have done that. You know, at least in the Depression, 
these these ways these instruments of creating debt were never available to people. So right. if we don't do this, this what's happening, what's facing us in the future, I think is going to be much worse than the 1920s and, and, and 29s and the 30s because they the, the country didn't have any debt to speak of it during those time periods. And one of the things which is very interesting, and this is so hard to believe, but in Germany in the in the 20s, when they had all that hyperinflation, and and here the, the, Germany was one of probably the best educated uh, group of people I would say in the world at that time. I mean, you know, give or take, but they they, they certainly yeah. had uh, you know uh, universities and professors and PhDs and all the rest of that stuff going back a long time, and they never understood the concept of printing money, creating inflation. And I know it's hard to believe, it's impossible to believe, but they never got it until, uh, uh, you know, until dictatorships came along. And what happened in the, what was very interesting, what happened in the 30s is you had in Italy and you had in Russia and you had in Germany, you had dictatorships. The United States and England, I guess, were the only countries or the basic ones that that uh, skirted the issue of of times being so bad that a dictator had to come in and 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 uh, you know clean up the mess or or, or to, to you know put the you know to take control of the country. And, and David, I think you're, you're you're pointing out that the countries had entered into such a a debt and such a hyperinflation as a way to pay back the debt. They started printing money that they uh, it opened the door to a dictator. Uh, to yep. come in, and of course, in the ancient Roman times, the dictator would come in just temporarily, do the work that needed to be done, and then go back to his farm, which was the model of Cincinnatus. But nowadays, in the 1930s, you had dictators come up in all the countries you mentioned, starting, of course, with the so creation of the Soviet Union, and then on to National Socialist Germany and Fascist Italy. And uh, that's what you seem to be implying could happen here if we don't deal with this um the, this unsustainable debt, which is going to put um, a burden on the on the value of the dollar, it's going to force huge tax increases. Already, we see that if if Barack Obama is reelected, we're going to be facing the largest tax increase in American history. Um, and and then you would you say that 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 could lead to a dictatorship? Well, I'm saying that uh, nothing good is going to happen. Uh, here in this country until we face the national debt. And nobody, these two parties, okay, and they're as, as uh, different as they can be, coming from different perspectives and not, and in fact, nobody, I have not heard anybody in the entire world, there are 7 billion people on this planet, and I have not heard one person say, what about the idea of paying off the national debt of any country? And what's going to happen is the United States is the biggest debtor. I mean, forget Greece. They're peanuts. And so is right. so is Spain by itself, and so, which with 24% unemployment, and, and, and Italy and, and France, everywhere else. Those guys by themselves are all peanuts compared to $16 trillion here. And let me tell you what's going to happen is, is that the bond vigilantes, which have raised the 10-year bond in Spain, let's say. I mean, and I don't know who would, would lend a nickel to Spain. I mean, I can't even imagine. But mm -hmm. but uh, they're going to force, as they have over there, the 10-year bond over there is like 6 or 7%. They're going to do that here in the United States. 
they're going to get around to doing in the United States what they're doing in Europe. It's just that they haven't got around to here yet. And we right. still have enough credit and assets, but the time comes. You know, this when Obama got into office, it was $10 trillion of national debt. Today it's going up to 16. What do you think it's going to be in another four years? And let me tell you, when we hit $20 trillion, all of a sudden people are not going to be lending to the United States anymore. I mean, we've already downgraded the credit from AAA to AA, which, which nobody, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, my, my grandfather's, <laughs> my parents are turning over in their grave that this is what we've done, and this is what we're leaving to our children and our grandchildren. It's unconscionable. And mm-hmm. yet, as bad as it is, there's not one politician on the entire planet who said, wow, what about paying off the national debt? Well, but David, again, you're the only presidential candidate that actually is taking this position. How are you doing in terms of your campaign? Are you getting traction for this? No. What I need to do is to get uh, into New York City media. And mm-hmm. what I'm going to do is I've got a program where I can get 15, believe this or not, but this is what a guy told me and, and I talked to him, I can get ads on CNN, 15-second ads, um, uh, for $30 a piece, and I'm going to go on there this fall and start. What I want is to have a, a to be interviewed by The Economist magazine about my idea to pay off the national debt. Well, you, and you sound like you're in the right direction. I hope so. And I Getting up there is, is a very big step. How can people get in touch with you, David, uh, to find out more about well, your campaign? You can email me at dclark, C-L-A-R-K, P-C, as in Park City, at AOL.com. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have a website. Uh, I've, I've been – I'm out here in Utah. I got a lot of exposure. I started this uh, last November. I got a lot of exposure locally, but I never seem to be able to take it up to the next level. But I hope if somebody's listening – uh, I mean, if you want to write an article, you're a newspaper uh, reporter or something, uh, you know, please interview me. And uh, th- this is this is the future of our country. And and if this is the legacy that my generation, I'm 68, I mean, shame on us that we're leaving mm. this uh, legacy to our children and our grandchildren. Uh, they will never forgive us, and they never should. Well, you know, David, you make a very sincere presentation, and I think you're bringing up an issue that resonates with uh, with, so with most Americans. I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Okay. Thank you very much. All Sean. right. Take care. You bet. Bye-bye. David Clark is running for the presidency of these United States. We shall return after these messages for our affiliate stations.
are back. You're welcome to join the conversation. Chuck Morse speaks 347-327-9849. What is on your mind this afternoon? 347-327-9849. David Bernstein will be joining me this week. He is the uh, chief um, theoretician, if you will, the chief columnist at the very liberal Boston Phoenix. He interviewed me many years back when I ran for office myself, and he's got a very provocative article up this week in the Phoenix. Is the, has the Tea Party been departed, or have they been have they had their bag cut off? Is how he puts it, very vulgar, like very vulgar terms, by Mitt Romney. Um, and uh, we, he's a he's a very good radio guy. He's going to be um, coming on from time to time to give the uh, the left side of the story. Uh, Phoenix is is uh, one of these real hard left, kind of notoriously left papers. You know, in in typical fashion, they'll never say anything on their pages that's anything but left wing. I mean, they will not ever uh, include a conservative point of view, and um, so they kind of exist in their own parallel universe, as it were, in my opinion. The big story, of course, today is the Chicago teachers' strike. Uh, you've got um, – they turned down a $400 million contract deal. They turned down a 16% pay raise offered by their mayor, who is, of course, a liberal Democrat, former head, former chief of staff in the Obama administration, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, this is uh, – you know, this is Scott Walker all over again. This is uh, – the Scott Walker factor in this election, um, except, of course, this is proof of what I had been mentioning during the Scott Walker controversy, which is that um, Governor Scott Walker was dealing with some of the same problems that other urban, other governors of, of, of urban states and, and, and industrial states um, are dealing with, whether they be Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, and that is this increased power of uh, public unions and their ability to uh, make demands on their employer, which is us, the taxpayer. You know, this is, they don't work for a private company here. You know, they're working for us and um, they're, dema they're making demands on us and they're doing so collectively. And I, I look, I would argue that this is a, this is wrong. Public unions should not exist. There's no reason for public, the public sector to be unionized. These are good jobs. They are good wages. Um, if, if there's a situation that arises where a teacher is being abused, uh, then you have school boards who are elected who can uh, who they could should be able to appeal to, and have their case heard. Um, I don't think that they need to have collective bargaining, and then get these enormous benefits and pensions and whatnot. These are good jobs, and I think that most people in this country, and most especially in these big cities like Chicago and New York, they want to pay the good teachers well, and they're willing to pay them well. But at the same time, they expect uh, bad teachers to uh, be be taken away because these are our children. You know, I mean, my daughter is in public school. Uh, we even had a controversy here in Boston last June or last May when uh, – the parents of um, Boston City School students, uh, like myself, we had hearings in, in Boston, and we demanded that the teachers' union 
step down in terms of their insistence on seniority as a means of, of, of merit benefits, and mainly because there were some teachers who were being laid off who were new teachers but who were excellent teachers, and there were other teachers who might have been excellent in their day but who were nearing retirement were not so good, who were being kept on because of seniority. That shouldn't happen. You know, teaching, is a, it should be a meritorious um, institution, uh, you know, awarded based upon merit. Uh, after all, again, these are, you know, that's certainly how it would, it would happen in the private sector. And while we want to make sure that teachers get a, a good deal more job security than do people in the private sector, and they do and should, Nevertheless, the parents have a right to demand that uh, that the excellent teachers are promoted. And here we have parents in uh, Chicago now, a half a million parents, probably more, suddenly in a situation where their children are not in school in the first week of school. This is terrible. This should not happen. Anyway, these teachers are getting an average of $76,000 a year before benefits, this isn't like, you know, I mean, the Chicago school system is not some kind of sweatshop. That's a heck of a lot better than most people I know who have jobs in the private sector. Um, and they're going on strike. This is really, you know, an outrage. And I think that this augurs very poorly for Barack Obama's election. Um, this is a bigger story than people want to admit this because it reminds people of the Scott Walker's situation, except now they can't scream that uh, this is a right-wing, you know, conspiracy. The Koch brothers, you know, they're not behind this and, and that sort of thing. No, this is actually, they're going up against uh, a left-wing liberal uh, mayor who uh, is a former Obama administration chief of staff, as mentioned, Rahm Emanuel. Uh, and I don't think it looks right. By the way, Rahm's kids, <laughs> according to this article posted in the Drudge Report, they don't. They're not being affected because they go to an elite, twenty-five thousand dollar a year school, a lab, as they call it. Um, Emmanuel says he's disappointed. He vows to end the strike. Police are pouring into the streets to deal with quote unsupervised kids, unquote. For an estimate, four hundred thousand students have been unleashed. They are not in school. Uh, some schools have stayed open in the city, but only to serve free meals. Um, and uh, basically, the city is, is is just on 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 edge. You know, this happened in Quincy too, by the way, which is of course where Cyber Station is. A couple of years back, where the teachers cut the year off a week early because the mayor of Quincy at the time, Mayor Phelan, um, asked uh, them to take. Uh, allow for their copay to be raised from three dollars to ten dollars, you know, and this was not acceptable to the teachers' union. And then ten dollars, by the way, for a copay for a doctor's appointment is still a heck of a lot less than most of us have to pay. And uh, they went into a tizzy over that, and there was a strike. Yeah, it's wrong. I mean, this is uh, this is a, the the Achilles heel, I think, of the Democratic Party. Because these unions are big contributors, almost probably, I would gather, at least 95, 96% of their money, which comes out of forced dues, because you have to be in the union by law if you are a teacher in that city. The money goes to Democratic Party candidates and the Democratic Party causes 
and the Democratic Party itself. So they are, they're going to have to answer to that. I think that they should be called on this. I think we should ask President Obama what he thinks of the, um, the Chicago teacher strike. Does he think that this is something that should be allowed in this country? Uh, you know, this is uh, it, it's th- there should be no it should be illegal for public employees to strike. You know, this is what Ronald Reagan dealt with with PATCO. You know, it's a national security it's not a national security issue, but it's uh, it's almost the equivalent of that when you have a school system with with 400,000 students. Suddenly, the students are not in school. Uh, you know how that affects their education, how that affects their parents' ability to work. You know, when you have younger children, you have to, they have to, they can't just leave them home latchkey. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it creates a great deal of social and political dislocation in a city. It should not happen. So I think that this, again, it's going to remind people of uh, Scott Walker and what he was up against when he uh, tried to remove collective bargaining from public employees. And maybe some people are going to scratch their head and say, you know something, not only was Scott Walker right, but Scott Walker won. Uh, You know, people might say, well, the recall was just because people in Wisconsin don't like recalls. That's nonsense. Wisconsin has conducted recall elections apparently going all the way back you know, 50, 60 years. It's nothing new. They, he won, and he gained a larger share of his victory because he was right. The uh, public sector unions should not have monopoly power in that state because it's double jeopardy. They are working for us. We control the government, not these unions. The public sector itself doesn't control itself. The public sector is supported by us. And by the way, once uh, once uh, Wisconsin became an open shop and the unions had to compete with other institutions and with non-union um, employees, uh, you had a phenomenon where something like 30%, 40% of public employees dropped out of their unions. I think it might even be higher than that. And they got a raise because they no longer had to pay union dues. You also had a situation where in, uh, in Wisconsin, the uh, public sector unions forced by law as one of their conditions of collective bargaining that all municipalities in that state had to buy their municipal insurance policies for their employees from this one union-run company, run by union thugs, and charging exorbitant fees, which all went to the unions and then were doled out to their various political friends, candidates for office. Well, guess what? After Scott Walker got rid of that, um, and that the municipalities no longer had to buy their health insurance policies from the union-controlled health insurance company, the health insurance costs for the municipalities dropped by millions of dollars. And that's a lot of money when you have a small town or a small city. And the union shop, the union insurance company, had to lower their fees because they had to compete on the open market with non-union insurance companies. So the result was that the the, the corrupt union-run health insurance company was cut down to size in order to survive. 
and that the municipalities in that state were able to save millions and if not tens of millions of dollars, money that actually could go to other things like maybe improving their park system or adding a sports team or building a new pool or doing all the things that we want our money to go to or just going back to the people. So I think that the same dynamic is at play here. And I mention this because even here in Massachusetts, our legislature, our state house being about to the left of any in the country, um, they, they had an almost unanimous vote to take away collective bargaining from public employees, unions. So this is not a left-right thing, but it is a Democrat-Republican thing because the Democrat Party is completely beholden <clears throat> to this as one of their major power bases, one of their major finance bases. If you took a look, you take a look at the top ten organizational donors in America, six of them at least are unions, and, and many of those are connected to public unions. Um, this is something which they have enormous influence, and it's wrong. Anyway, you're welcome to join the conversation. Come on down. Uh, let's see. That would be 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. What say you? Please stay tuned. Open lines. Chuck Moore speaks. Come on down. 347-327-9849. I am concerned over the issue of voter fraud, and anyone who's listened to me uh, these past several years knows that uh, it's one of the issues that I hold up as a major problem. Um, I view one man, one vote as a sacred, as close to a sacred entity is anything we have in our secular society, the sacredness of the one vote, one man uh, concept or one woman, that every vote should count, every legitimate vote, and that if you have fraud, that dilutes the will of the people. And that I have always felt that this country could do a better job of making sure that voter fraud doesn't occur. I think that voter fraud does occur and has always occurred. There are cases of it going all the way back probably to the founding of the republic. It does happen on both parties. 
but I think that it's safe to say that the Democrats are much more oriented toward it than the Republicans, for various reasons, at least at this particular point in our history. That may not have always been true. Uh, part of that has to do with ACORN and their involvement in voter fraud going all the way back to the 1970s when they were founded in local and state elections and eventually in national elections. Um, and that voter fraud is the kind of thing that is very difficult to detect because it is just that, fraud. You know, you have hundreds of thousands of votes that are cast and they're not detected, mainly because uh, they are votes that are from dead people or they're votes from people who have moved out of state or whatnot, students whose names uh, are, on the, are on the voting rolls in both their home state and in the state where they're going to college. And it's a system which can be and is rigged. There's a case even right now in North Carolina where there was something like 30,000 votes found that were not in existence. This is a situation where the vote could be cast and nobody would ever know that it had been cast. Uh, it is a major problem. John Fund talks about this, has written extensively on it, um, and I think his work is very credible. And I think that when ACORN was exposed publicly as a for what it is, which is a corrupt, you know, syndicate-like organization, um, and that this forced the government to break its contracts with ACORN, ACORN's ability would, was diminished at best in terms of its ability to bring out the vote, as they call it, you know, get out the vote. Uh, even the Obama administration broke its uh, contract with ACORN. Do you imagine that ACORN was contracted by the uh, Department of the U.S. Department of Commerce to conduct the census. They were going to send ACORN people out to do census. I mean, talk about corruption. But anyway, ACORN is not able to to do this sort of thing because of their diminished capacity right now. And I think this is why Democrats are screaming on the top of their lungs about uh, voter legitimate. Uh, ID reforms being put in place in different states. And what's worse than that is that it's very, there's a very dangerous trend of the uh, Obama administration and their attorney general's office uh, actually, you know, trying to, to stop these reforms and, and are having some success at it in the courts, which, which tells me that, um, you know, we're going to have a situation in this country where, where elections are going to be stolen in a massive way. Their ballot boxes are going to be stuffed with tens of thousands, millions of votes possibly that don't exist. And that um, our democracy is going to change radically as a result. We will no longer have a means to determine the real vote. Uh, we will have, in a sense, a de facto dictatorship. Uh, there will always be um, elections stolen. They might let one or two go through just to keep the appearance of balance. But if they don't get, if they are able to stop voter ID, then there will be no way of, of stopping the fraud. And I am very concerned about that. Um, you might note that the Democratic Party, national, the Democratic National Convention, they had strict voter ID or strict ID for attending. Uh, in fact, they double-checked everyone, both outside and inside, to make sure they were who they said they were before they were let into the building. So it's certainly something that the Democrats understand the value of. 
And this idea that there are millions of people who are who don't have proper ID. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. But even if it is true, um, I think that it's reasonable to suggest, and it's a rather simple suggestion, that these same people are not inclined to vote. They are not that interested in registering to vote. If they don't even have an ID, then why would we think that they'd, they'd be seeking a vote? This idea that somehow their vote is being suppressed, that's just ludicrous. I mean, it's also racist because... People who say this bring up the fact that the claim that African Americans might have a higher percentage of people who don't have IDs, and there's no evidence of that. That's a, that's getting into a, a very bad stereotype of black people as not being able to function on their own. I think it's it's just the worst kind of racism uh, around right now. I mean, there have been worse historically. But the fact is that people who don't have proper ID, assuming that there are these numbers, they're not trying to vote. This has nothing to do with them. This has to do with voter fraud. It has to do with making sure that everyone who does vote is who they say they are. It's, in a sense, conforming with the voting systems in most other countries in the world. Uh, We don't have to be as extreme about it as Mexico is. In Mexico, you have to put a fingerprint, a thumbprint, um, and show an ID. It's simply a matter of identifying yourself as a voter in the same way that you identify yourself if you buy a six-pack of beer, you know, or if you go to a club, or if you go to a restaurant, or you know, or other same such situations. You know, a lot of people who might, uh, you know, who might get public assistance of some sort. Are they properly identifying themselves? Of course, it's another question. But if they're getting monies from the U.S. taxpayer, whether it be in the form of some welfare program or whether it be legal aid or or food aid or housing aid or whatnot, are they, prob- are they, are they able to identify themselves properly so we know that they are not fraud- defrauding the system? You know, it, it's simply a matter of common sense to expect that people who show up at the voting booth simply identify themselves. And uh, these claims that states have these draconian um, means to, to force people to do that, I mean, I, I, what, what, what is draconian about asking someone to show their license? You know, most people, I, I don't know how many people have licenses as a percentage of the population, but I would imagine it's probably over 90% of Americans have a driver's license and those who don't generally do have a, a state, a recognized state uh, ID card of some sort, you know, maybe even a social security card. And if a, sta- a state should be able to provide that for someone if they don't have it, I mean, this doesn't seem to me to be that difficult. And I think that this issue being brought up the way it is, is exactly what Republicans say it is, and that is an attempt to steal the election. And if we let this happen, and we allow voter fraud to occur to the degree that I think it will, especially in the the so-called Rust Belt states, the Midwest states, like Ohio and Michigan, then you know we might as well kiss this republic goodbye. If we if we can't have a legitimate clean vote. Um, then, you know, it's just a very dangerous trend. 
I would argue that all of these programs are programs that are simply trying to identify the voters, whether they be liberal or conservative, whether they be Democrat or Republican, and that this is something that was cooked. The the fact that there is an issue here was cooked up by left-wing groups such as the the William Brennan Group, which I saw at Netroots Nation, by the way, and which received a $7.5 million check from George Soros when they started. They are the group that's coming up with these so-called studies that indicate that um, minorities are not do not have the proper ID. Of course, they don't, you know, whether or not that's true, and I don't believe that, but even if it were true, uh, those who don't have proper ID are, are not probably inclined to vote anyways. And the other question as a sidebar with regard to anyone who doesn't have proper ID, as mentioned, is um, are they accepting public assistance of any sort? And if so, are they not required to identify themselves in order to receive that public assistance? You know, the left likes to say that um, – you know, the conservatives are concerned, you know, make a big deal out of corruption and graft when it comes to welfare. Well, then why don't they support simple, proper, basic ID as a way to, um, as, a, as, a, as a common denominator before one receives public funds? That way you would reduce and probably remove, I don't know, 95% of the graft and corruption. That way we could know who is receiving an, uh, uh, the, the proper, um, you know, program if they qualify. I also do not think that, therefore, the answer is for a one national ID. I don't think that's that's the way to go either. That gets into Big Brother stuff, you know, that gets into um, computer chips implanted under your skin. Uh, the, I did not agree with the National ID Act, and that was actually promoted by Republicans. Um, I think that it can be done and should be done on the state level. The states should have in place a system where people do are, are to get an ID. You know, if the government can force everyone to pay to have health insurance, you know, at least I would hope on a state level there can be some means, maybe something short of required, but a means that certainly would make it very conducive. For people to develop some sort of a, a uniform state-recognized ID um, if they want to do business with that state, if they want to get public assistance, if they want to vote, if they want to buy liquor at a liquor store, or if they want to do any of the other things that um, one might be asked to identify themselves to do, Whether go to a club, you know, drive a car, you know, reasonable things that one does that, that would require such such identification. Uh, I would think that that would be something that um, that should be done. Anyways, coming up on Wednesday of this week at 1 o'clock, we'll be joined by nationally syndicated radio talk show host Janet Parshall. Um, and, of course, I said David Bernstein will be coming on, chief columnist at the Boston Phoenix sometime this week, to talk about his article about how Mitt Romney has cut the Tea Party off um, very interesting article. And I'm in touch with some other people as well. The program is rolling along. 
That's all I can tell you. We are moving the thing out exponentially, and I think things will pick up greatly. Once I get my computer back, <laughs> I mean, my computer has been now in the shop for almost two weeks, and I'm operating on a very old and antiquated computer, which means I'm kind of operating with one, one, one and a half arms tied behind my back here. I haven't been able to launch uh, much of anything in terms of uh, the media campaign. Let's see. The gov government motors, General Motors, loses $49,000 on each Chevy Volt. Oh, my goodness. That's not exactly good news. I mean, does that cost the taxpayer? I don't know. It's, this is from Reuters today. GM Volt, the ugly math of low sales, high cost. General Motors sold a record number of Chevy Volt sedans in August, but that probably isn't a good thing for the automaker's bottom line. Nearly two years after the introduction of the path-breaking plug-in hybrid, GM is still losing as much as $49,000 on each Volt it builds, according to estimates provided to Reuters by industry analysts and manufacturing experts. GM on Monday issued a statement disputing the estimates. Cheap Volt lease offers meant to drive more customers to Chevy showrooms this summer may have pushed that loss even higher. There are some Americans paying just $5,050 to drive around for two years in a vehicle that costs as much as $89,000 to produce. I wonder who's picking up the slack on that. I kind of do wonder, probably the taxpayer, I would guess. Anyway, that kind of does it for today. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at noon if you're listening to Blog Talk Radio and at 1 with our affiliate station, USA Radio Network, and our affiliates. I think Michael Wanowitz will be with me tomorrow. We'll be discussing religion and its intersection with politics. Check out the blog site, chuckmorespeaks.com, to get more um, up-to-date on my latest blogs. I want to thank you all for listening this afternoon. Have a good afternoon, everybody.